Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Peter Mayle, whose memoir, A Year in Provence, published in 1989, became a huge bestseller and who single-handedly, it seemed, changed the face of tourism in that part of southern France, died on January 19, 2018, at the age of 78. Over the course of his career, he wrote several novels and several collections of essays, most of which were set in Provence. I had an opportunity to interview Peter Mayle on October 18, 1999, while he was on tour for his collection of essays, Encore Provence, his third nonfiction book set in that part of France. I began the interview by asking him about what drew him to Provence and what set him on the road as a writer. Well, I, uh, I have to confess that I've, I'm very biased in favor of, of France in general, and Provence in particular. It's a place where most English people experience their first foreign visit because it's the closest to England. It's only 25 miles across the channel. And it was a place where I first discovered food, because I'd been brought up in England, post-war England, where you ate sort of gray things and, and uh, there was not really much difference between the vegetables and the meat. And I remember very vividly going to Paris for the first time when I was 18, I think. Somebody took me out to lunch and I thought, this is, this is not like anything I've ever eaten before in my life. So it made a, a, a deep impression on me at a fairly early age. And subsequent to that, every time I had a chance, I used to go over to to France because the other great attraction, especially down in the south, is that France has a summer, which England uh, famously doesn't. And so um, I used to save my money up and go belting down to the south of France, lie on a beach for two weeks, get roasted, and then come thundering back up again. And one day, my wife and I were down on the coast on vacation, and uh, unusually, it was very poor weather. Uh, so we took a, a trip in the back hills and quite by accident found this little pocket of uh, which is called the Luberon, a, a small mountain range with these enchanting medieval villages stuck on the hills. It looked like a postcard photographer's dream. And we fell in love with it and then subsequently we kept going back to that particular part. And at the same time, I was getting more and more disenchanted with my um, labors in the advertising field because as a writer, I, I was a copywriter. Uh, and I, I know you can understand this. You like to have the stuff that you do last for slightly longer than 24 hours. And, you know, you can't help but feel when you're writing a newspaper ad that, uh, you know, tomorrow it's going to be used to wrap up fish and chips or, or get in the garbage. And so I had pretensions about writing something that was going to be a little more lasting. Eventually started off by writing a book for children, for my children, about the facts of life, which was a long time ago. 
and that did reasonably well, and it encouraged me to, to think that I might possibly be able to earn a scratch a living from the parched earth as a writer. And eventually uh, the moment came when I sort of said, I've got to get out of advertising if I'm ever going to become a writer. And my wife, bless her, backed me up. And then the next big move was we said, well, one of the great advantages of being a writer is you have an independence of life. You can choose where you want to live. And so why don't we go and live in the place that we really love, which is Provence. I had the intention when we first moved there of writing a novel because I thought it would be peaceful, tranquil, calm and undisturbed. And I was overtaken really by events because we, we lived for about six months with builders. And I found it all so fascinating what was going on that I, I forgot about the novel and, and wrote uh, A Year in Provence instead, which was just a sort of diary of the, the impressions of our first year. And it became a huge success. It did in time. I have to say that when I finished it, my literary agent and my English publisher warned me against expecting too much. I mean, they printed 3,000 copies and uh, my publisher said there's going to be some left. So, you know, if you if you want some cheap Christmas presents to give to your friends, I'll let you have the remainders at, uh, you know, 40% off or something. And then about six weeks after it had been published in England, uh, I got a call from my publisher who sounded actually rather cross. And he said, we've sold out of the 3,000 copies. And I said, well, that's terrific, isn't it? And he said, well, yes. He said, I suppose so, but it means we're going to have to reprint. As if that was <laughs> terrible, you know, ghastly thing. And so he printed it. He said, I'm going to go for another 1,500 copies. I don't want to go mad. And it went on and on and on. And now it's uh, that particular book has sold uh, between four and five million copies and 22 languages, I think. It was a tremendous surprise for everybody, a nice surprise for me by and large. But there were side effects which weren't so great because it, it attracted an awful lot of people to our house most of whom were very nice. They were readers who just wanted an autograph or more often than not a drink. But there was a lot of journalistic attention, particularly from the British press. Uh, and they're not a particularly pleasant bunch of people. But then we used to find photographers and people in the garden. That brings up the, uh, the Heisenberg principle at work. It's the observer changes what he or she observes. And in this case, Peter Mail changed the privacy of the Luberon by writing the book. Well, certainly it affected our own privacy, and we became sort of uh, a stopover on, on a tourist trail. You know, the buses would come over from Avignon or somewhere, and you'd see people getting out, and they'd take photographs of the house, and some of them would come up, and uh, I'd say, you know, how nice to see you. And they say, oh, didn't you know you're on a tour? You're, you're part of the thing that is promised by the tour operators. And uh, I had a busload of Japanese people come, and they I had 15 women, all with cameras, from Tokyo, marching up the drive in uh, sort of strict battle order. And I said, what are you doing here? And they showed me the thing, and it, and it said, visit to Peter Mail's house. And I said, well, nobody's told me about that. And they said, oh, yeah, but we've paid for it, so we want to come and see the house. And it was those sort of things that were slightly less than wonderful because it was very difficult to lead any kind of um, peaceful, normal life. I mean, this used to happen five, ten times a week. Various arrivals would pop up, and it was, uh, it was a curious period. 
has it faded out now? Well, it has. I mean, we, we decided that we'd have to take a break. We'd, we endured it for a couple of years, and it just became intolerable. And so we sold that house, and we spent a couple of years, four years, in fact, in the States, waiting for the dust to settle, and getting increasingly homesick for France. And so we, we found another house a fair distance away from our original house, and I moved back there. And the nice thing is that it's, uh, it's often a very risky business going back to a place where you've had a good time and you've been very happy because distance lends a certain amount of enchantment and you forget the, the inconveniences and, and some of the less wonderful times. And I have to say that it's uh, everything that we hoped it would be and with a bit of luck, we're there for good now. Provence is a fairly large region uh, and I was trying... Uh, to figure out exactly how many areas are there in France and how much of France is Provence? It's not a really easy region to define geographically because it's basically the southern slice from Nice or Montan in the east over to uh, Carcassonne in the west and up to a place called Valence. The geographical areas it includes are the departments. There are several departments in France. They have their special names and their boundaries. And the Vaucluse is one. The Var is another. Haute-Provence is another. But it's a sort of mess. I always think that Provence is more of a, of a feeling than it is of a, of a geographically bounded place. It's also called the Midi in France. It's one of those places where you know you're there even when you've got your eyes shut because there's a sound from the... Um, the seagull, the little crickets, and there's a smell in the air. There's wonderful light. It's terribly hot usually, and there's a slowness to life, which is extremely seductive to me at any rate. And you've noticed the difference even within France. You go up to the north, and it's much more like the urban pace of, of places in, uh, in America or in England. And so it's one of those places you either find terribly frustrating because nothing happens very quickly and the weather is quite excessive because it goes from 100 degrees often in the summer down to maybe five below zero in the winter just for short periods. It's not a particularly well-organized place I and mean, you have to have to have a great deal of patience. If you like that or if you can endure that, the consolations are enormous. I mean, the, the, the scenery is spectacular. The light is just breathtaking. The food and drink aren't bad either. And the people are a long way away from the, the sort of stereotypical idea that most people have of the French. Now, my theory is that most people going to France go to Paris. And the first person that they really have any exchange with... Is the Parisian. Is the Parisian. No, not only the Parisian, <laughs> but the Parisian waiter, who is uh, known for his ability to humiliate people in public. And the fact is that he probably does the same to his wife at home. They just like that. And France, it seems to me, often suffers rather unjustly from a reputation of having difficult, arrogant, rather distant people. And it's just not true down in the South. They're Mediterranean by nature, and they're much more relaxed. They like to laugh. They're very friendly. It's like a different country. When we think of various areas of France or Europe or even the United States, a part of us still thinks about the regionalism. Yet it's also true in the United States that if you go into Vancouver, San Francisco, uh, Austin, 
you know, Chicago, mm-hmm. to some degree, it's all the same culture. And it's become that way in London and in Edinburgh and in Paris, too. What about Provence? Are they still, is it still that region or has it changed? I mean, do they turn on the radio and listen to the same kind of stuff, American music that we're listening to here, the packaged foods? Uh, well, they listen, to, they listen to French rock and roll sometimes, or French rap, which is the most ghastly experience you've ever heard in your life. Provence is a little world on its own. Marseille, for instance, which is the biggest city in Provence, they have had 2,600 years of their existence. They have had a profound dislike of Paris, central government, and being told what to do. And there is this this sort of maverick feeling down there. They feel, I think, also that they appreciate the fact they're in a fairly privileged part of the world. I mean, what is so nice and what I think contributes so much to the atmosphere that I like is that people are rather happy to be there. They don't actually want to go and live in Paris or uh, Los Angeles or uh, central France. They say, we've got a pretty nice deal going down here. And uh, that makes a difference to how a place feels. They do have McDonald's down there. They do have the Gap down there. If you want CNN, I suppose you can get it down there too. But the French as a whole and the Provençal people as well have what I suppose their critics would call a very chauvinistic outlook on life or their their supporters would call a very patriotic outlook on life and they like to preserve the Frenchness of France as much as possible. It's not possible, obviously, all the time and particularly in business, but in social terms, they they like to to do what they they think is the best way of doing things, which, of course, is the French way of doing things. Are they xenophobic particularly down there? Certainly not as much as the English. I mean, I have to say that my my compatriots in England, when you read the English press, I can't believe the, the sort of screaming and shouting they do. They're at war with the French at the moment because they don't particularly want to get involved in the European community uh, because they're worried about their sovereignty and having to drive on the wrong side of the road or the money going being changed into euros or something. The French are not particularly xenophobic. They're, they're, they, they just think that France is the best place in the world. A sort of natural arrogance, I suppose. And the thing that I always find so funny is the French and the English are always insulting each other, but usually with the same epithets. So that if you hear a Frenchman describing the English, you'll say he's arrogant, unreliable, pleased with himself and cold. And then you can hear an Englishman describe the French in exactly those terms. So it's the sort of constant love-hate relationship that neighbors frequently have. Encore Provence contains several different essays. One of the most fascinating I found is on a smelling academy. I didn't even know these places exist where people... Well, they don't. I mean, this is the first in the world. It's an extraordinary place because uh, a very enlightened company that makes that is based in Provence and makes soap and herbal stuff and uh, you know just sort of nice stuff generally did something some time ago which I thought was very enlightened they put braille on their label so that you could if you were a blind person in a bathroom you could tell the difference between shampoo and bath gel or whatever and they've extended this now and last year they started up in a tiny, tiny little village in Haute-Provence called Lartier. They started up a school to educate young blind people to be perfume noses. 
because um, the, the nose in, a, in the perfume business is the guy or the woman who constructs the different ingredients to make the thing that smells so good on your skin. And I thought it was just a terrific idea because quite apart from the fact that it, it is a pleasant idea, I mean, it is giving to a, a handicapped minority a chance of doing something. It also makes a lot of sense because if you're, one of your senses is, is not functioning, then the other senses usually are sharper so that you're hearing, your taste and your smell sharper. And they asked me if I would be their honorary president. So I said, of course, I'd be delighted. So the first session was held last year and there were, I think, 12 children of ages from maybe 10 to 17 taken through their paces by a maître parfumier, a man who, who builds, creates perfumes who come from grass, which is the perfume capital of the world. Really. And he was the professor and he took them through their paces and there was a, you know, a short introductory session of about a week. And one of the people, he said, is potentially an extraordinary talent at this sort of business. And so he's going to the university up in Paris, the, the, the smells university or the <laughs> perfume university, whatever it's called. And then we're, we're hoping to enlarge the school next year and to take in maybe blind young people from other countries apart from France. And I think it's just a nice, worthwhile, intelligent, great thing to do. And they treat perfume uh, the same way people a chef would treat food by using recipes and knowing the distinctive ways yeah. smells interact with one another. It's very curious, right? Because I went to Grass to see the guy and he took me around the, the place where he works. And there's some, I can never understand how you, how you know about these things. I just, I guess it's just uh, experience, but there are some really quite disgusting things used in the formation <laughs> of uh, something that ends up smelling really nice. I mean, musk and and whale vomit and really things that you don't want to think about too much. You certainly don't want to dab them behind your ears. He says it's very much like creating a painting in the nose so that you you have your background and then you have little highlights. And he's very interesting and entertaining to talk about it. And he's a wonderful teacher. And he's done over 2,000 perfumes he's created from the very, very basic room freshener sort to the stuff that uh, you know you 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 find on on models, and I always th think it must be rather strange for him to go to a party or to, to meet people and to recognise something his work right. on them. Uh, I would I would certainly have a tremendous temptation to go up and say I, it's me who makes you smell <laughs> the way you do. Um, it's a fascinating business. Provence is also one of the truffle capitals of the world, or or the truffle capital. You talk about how you can figure out where truffles are and dogs. I mean, we always heard about pigs finding truffles. That's true. And pigs uh, have been the traditional way of, of, uh, of finding them. The problem with the pig is that there is something about the smell of a truffle which has sexual connotations to a pig. And the other problem is that uh, once the tr they find a truffle, they want to eat it. And the third problem is that the pig weighs 250 pounds and to dissuade him from eating the truffle is quite a problem. So dogs being slightly more mobile and easier to push out of the way have been trained and it's, uh, it's interesting the way they train them because they, 
start off with a bit of truffle juice and then they dip something that the dog really likes to eat, like sausage or cheese, into the truffle juice, feed it that, then start to hide it, let the dog find it, give it to them. And so eventually the dog associates the smell of truffles with a reward. It doesn't want to eat the truffle, but it's just the smell and then it goes off to the sausage or the gruyere cheese or whatever. And it's wonderful to watch a dog work. I mean, they get so excited and they're so delicate with it because they, uh, they don't sort of hack it about. They just uncover the little patch of earth above the truffle. They pushed aside and then you see this great big warty black thing. About the size of a, what, an American baseball? No, or? they vary. I mean, if you got, a, got one the size of an American baseball, you'd be, you'd be rich for the week. I mean, it, that would be great. They vary from the size of a, of, a, of a marble up to something that weighs maybe a couple of pounds. It's a curiously furtive business because you can't cultivate truffles. Poaching is rampant. When you're buying and selling, you never expect to see anything in the form of a receipt or a guarantee. It's a cash business and you take your chances. And a lot of the truffles found in Provence are actually taken up to other regions of France called the Perigord, which is supposed to have the best truffles in the world. But about 50% of the Perigord truffles actually come from Provence, but they go up there because it commands a higher price. So it's a, it's a, it's a mucky business, but a fascinating business. Uh, you you mentioned... Um that one restaurant actually serves truffle sandwiches. And I would wonder how much one of those, a sandwich of truffles would cost? A lot. I mean, it's, uh, it varies with the market and the time of the year and all that sort of stuff. But truffles last year were going for, I don't know, about 6,000 francs a kilo, which is about $1,000 for two pounds in weight. So it's $500 a pound. You know, it'll be the most expensive sandwich you've ever had in your life. <laughs> You also discuss olive oil. I wasn't aware that olive trees, in order to get to any size, are incredibly old. The oldest known tree, I think, is uh, something like just over 2,000 years old, and that's in Jerusalem. And uh, I don't know how they managed to work out its precise age, but they, the, the wonders of modern science have helped them do that. Most of the um, olive trees should live a thousand years. They're extraordinarily resilient trees. I mean, you can mistreat them. They can be bound in brambles and ivy and God knows what. And if you clear it away and prune the tree, it'll, it'll come back. I, it's my favorite tree because it looks beautiful all year round. It, it, the leaves don't drop off. They're a silvery green. And when the wind blows through them, there's this wonderful rippling effect of light moving around. I love olives anyway, I love oil, and it's a tree that just gives you delight in, in so many different ways, and it doesn't actually need a great deal of work. I've got about a hundred at home in the, in the land that we have by the house, and it's just a pleasure to, to walk through them and to think that they're going to be there for hundreds and hundreds of years after I'm gone, and in the meantime, November, I can take the olives go to the local mill, have it pressed into my own oil. It's a, it's a fabulous feeling. In Provence, people eat very fatty diets with a lot of cholesterol, and yet they're thin and they're healthy. And kind of reminds me of Dr. Atkins' diet, which is, uh, I believe, no carbohydrates 
and all meat <laughs> and and uh, and fatty food. And I'm curious as to what your theories are. You talk a little about it in your book. Why uh, why are people these people healthy when they're eating what we in America have been told is stuff that'll kill us at an early age? Well, I put it all down to drink. I think that's the secret of a long life. Uh, or not drink particularly, but certainly wine. There is a tremendous difference in the way the French eat from the way, let us say, the Americans eat, in that the French do not eat between meals. They might have a four-course meal, but it'll be smaller portions of meat and a lot more of vegetables and cheese and salads. Cooking, by and large, is done in olive oil rather than in butter or other fat, with the exception of things like foie gras and uh, cassoulet and confit, which are about 95% fat and totally delicious. And also, I think the French style of taking at least an hour off, often a great deal more in the middle of the day, to sit at a table and to eat lunch instead of having sandwiches at the desk or eating a hamburger in the car or something. I'm sure that's very good for you too. But I think possibly the secret is the balance. They have a, have a little bit of a little bit of everything. And as I say, I think wine does have a very, very beneficial effect, which is now being recognized scientifically. I think there's a, my favorite study of the moment is, is a, a study that says for, for absolutely perfect health, you should have five glasses of red wine a day, which uh, I think is, that's, that's, those are my sort of scientists, those people. It's the way of life, I think. It's a slightly a question of putting aside some time to eat and enjoy what you're eating and giving your digestion a chance to, to deal with it rather than constantly being you know, on the run and rushing around. Uh, so I guess it's that. Encore Provence also talks about the people. If people from America were to go over there, uh, and they do go over there, and get into the countryside a little rather than just stick to the touristy areas, they can be treated nicely? Sure. I've yet to be uh, treated badly by the French down there, and I'm English, and I, they, they actually prefer the Americans, I think, to the English by and large. The great thing to do, I think, is, is to, if you make an effort to, to them in, in language terms, they will respond to that effort very nicely. If, as I've seen people do, you just go down there and you talk in English as if you're speaking to someone who's perfectly fluent in English and they shrug because they don't actually know what you're talking about. It's no use just speaking louder or slower. They're not going to understand you in any case, and that really tees them off a bit, quite understandably, because I think if it happened you know, to you in, in San Francisco where and a Frenchman just came up and started hammering away at you in French, and you said, I'm sorry, I don't speak French, and he just started hammering away louder, you'd get slightly irritated with him. They're friendly people, they're outgoing people. They are aware, I think, that the money that comes from tourism and visitors is actually getting to be increasingly important to them as agriculture becomes more and more of a difficult business to, to earn a living at. And they're pleased with their country and they like showing it to people. Uh, so by and large, I don't think you'd have any problems at all. Are they, say, more colorblind toward people of different races than you might find, say, in the United States or elsewhere? Um, by and large, yes, I think. It's had a reputation in France for, for, for being hospitable to immigrants for many, many centuries. Uh, and, of course, they're very used to having had colonies in uh, 
Africa. They're very used to Algerians and, and Moroccans. And, but there is a very unpleasant exception, which is the National Front Party, uh, you know, Le Pen, who sort of bellows about France for the French and kick them all out. And there are four million people in France taking French jobs who should just be deported. Um, but you're going to get those sort of wackos everywhere, I think, probably. By and large, they are a very civilized race, the French, and they will uh, treat you on your merits. If, you, if you're a good addition to the community, you'll be taken in without any problems at all. If I were going to go to Provence, the one thing I would think about, of course, being in France is food. There's a particular cuisine that's Provençal. Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of, uh, lot of garlic in it, a great deal of uh, tomatoes, a lot of olive oil, olive derivatives. There's a wonderful sort of black, it's called black butter, it's tapenade, which is a crushed black olives, anchovies, and oil, which you spread on bread or you stuff into a baked potato. It's a very pungent diet. I mean, it's not by any means bland. There's, uh, I mean, there are, there's a particular dish called aioli, which is cod and potatoes with this sort of uh, Olympic standard mayonnaise that you eat with. It's very, very thick. You can stand a spoon up in it, and it's got a huge amount of garlic in it. That's quite delicious, but very antisocial. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a very distinctive cuisine, and I think it's probably very healthy for you because garlic, again, is another of the things that we're told is good for purifying the blood and generally making you feel wonderful. You've written now these three books about Provence. You took several years to come to America, and then you went back and you wrote this book. Are you planning now to live out in Provence? Oh, always, yeah. I mean, live and die. Live and die there, I think. Yeah, it's great. It's very rare that you find that something is as good as you expect it to be, not only once but twice. So I know I'm very lucky. I live where I want to live. I write about what I want to write about. And thank God there are a few people who want to read the books too. Oh, are you planning to write more essay books about Provence? Well, I'm involved at the moment in, in a, an idea which I hope is going to turn into a book. I'm fascinated by the sort of less known and slightly bizarre food festivals that go on all over France, often in little villages. Uh, for instance, I went the, uh, in spring to a frog festival in uh, Vitel, where there were 20,000 people suddenly invaded this little town in Vitel. And in the course of a weekend, ate two and a half tons of frog's legs. And I was um, indoctrinated into the brotherhood of the thigh tasters of Vitel, which is a, a brotherhood that, that supports the, the frog, or supports eating the frog, I should say. And it, it, it was hysterical. I mean, I was in amongst these grown men in curious sort of medieval garments, three-cornered hats and cloaks and things like that. There was a contest for the, for the most... Miss Grenouille, Miss Frog, was elected. Um, there was a huge lunch, naturally, with a lot of frog's legs in. And people just had a great time. And these things are all over France for various different foods. There's a snail festival. There's a French fry um, fair. There are goat's cheeses. There are all sorts of stuff. And I went to... Um, also a truffle mass, a religious service for to give thanks to Saint Antoine, who's the patron saint of truffles for this year's harvest, in this sweet church, which is absolutely jammed. And the priest uh, gave the, the sermon, had in front of him on the, on the altar, he had six huge truffles, 
There was a, a very nice religious service with a choir and everything. And then at the end, when the collection basket went round, you can't put money into it, you put truffles into it. So you have to buy <laughs> some truffles before you go to church, and then you put your truffles in there. After the service, you go out to the main square of the village, and the truffles are auctioned off, and the money is given to the church. So it's a nice sort of logical loop. And then there's lunch, of course. And you meet extraordinary people there, you know, people who've come down from the hills who, who were truffle hunters or truffle growers or truffle poachers. They're very engaging people. And it's, so it's those sort of things that I'm searching out now and going to. I'm going to one in um, Bresse next month, which is where the best chickens in France come from. Every chicken in Bresse, by law, has to have 10 square meters of its own space free range space to grow up in, otherwise it can't qualify. And it's those sort of things, those little arcane details about the French gastronomy that I find so interesting. Peter Mail, your latest book is Encore Provence, New Adventures in the South of France, earlier books, Toujours Provence and A Year in Provence, still in print. And I guess we'll be seeing your uh, gastronomic book one of these days. I hope so, yeah, I hope so, if I don't, if I don't die of pleasure in the meantime. <laughs> Peter Mail's book on French food festivals, French Lessons, Adventures with Knife, Fork, and Corkscrew, was published in 2001. His novel, A Good Year, published in 2004, became a film starring Russell Crowe, directed by Ridley Scott. Starting in 2009, Peter Mail wrote four mystery novels set in and around Provence, featuring his Epicurean sleuth, Sam Levitt. His final novel in the series, The Corsican Caper, was published in 2015. Because of this book and the interview, I decided to visit Provence in the summer of 2000, and it was glorious. And you can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>